Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 25, The Death of a Conqueror. Last time, William had just seen off the last of the major English rebellions that he had to face. Not that he wasn't to have ten more years of dashing around keeping his kingdom together, you understand, but one category of trouble had now been closed down, just for another one to then open up. Because William was going to have family problems. William seems to have been reasonably family-minded. He had nine children, for example, and seemed pretty keen on Matilda, his wife. He had five daughters, one of whom, Adela, we'll see again as the wife of Stephen of Blois. He had four sons, one of whom, Richard, died before him, leaving him with three boys. Robert, probably born in about 1054, William, born in 1056, and then Henry, born rather later in 1068. We're going to be living in the company of these guys for the next 50 years or so. So the eldest son was called Robert Curtos. Most people suggest he's called Curtos because he wore short socks. Logically enough, I suppose, although I don't know the clothes people wore back then well enough to imagine a Norman knight with a pair of short socks. But I did see one interpretation that Curtos meant that he was short and squat himself, which of course would also give him short socks, so that seems to make sense. So I'm going to go with that and imagine Robert as a short, squat bloke. Robert Curtos is one of the figures of the Norman age. He was to have a life that was hard and glamorous in equal measure. He'd be one of the leaders of the First Crusade, for example, but was then destined to spend almost 30 years imprisoned by his brother. But at this point in our story, Robert is 30, and he has the wild and warlike reputation that always seems appropriate for the son of an average Norman king or noble. There was much of his character that was well regarded and approved of. He was brave and an excellent fighter. He was adventurous and without doubt a man to be noticed but he was also to prove himself a better fighter than general, and that he had more of the characteristics of his grandfather than of his father. He was basically all fur coat and no knickers. During his time as Duke of Normandy, 
the barons liked him because they could basically get away with loads of stuff they wanted to do. We'll come to William and Henry a bit later, though it's worth noting that for whatever reason, William Rufus was thought to be the Conqueror's favourite son, and clearly so, and that the brothers themselves weren't great friends and much more like rivals. Robert expected to succeed William, but he certainly couldn't be sure of it. The Normans were not given to dividing their inheritance, in fact, something the Anglo-Saxons were much more likely to do. So Robert could certainly expect to receive his father's patrimony, i.e. Normandy. And in fact, William had probably already made him his heir for Normandy, with the consent of his feudal lord, Philip of France. But England, which William had acquired by conquest, well, it would have been perfectly in order for the conqueror to give that to another of his sons. So Robert felt restless and worried poor lamb. He was 29, he wanted some of the action and the glory. His mother Matilda was clearly much more sympathetic than his father was. And although she will play the role of peacemaker, she did also let her maternal instincts go to unhelpful lengths, on some occasions, for example, providing her son with men and horses, which drove her husband up the wall. It's unlikely that his father gave him much quality time or sat down for a heart-to-heart, so in 1078 his restlessness and ambition broke out into open rebellion. The Conqueror's family at the time were in south-east Normandy, campaigning against a rebellious noble or two. The story goes that the brothers quarrelled, and the quarrel ended up in a chamber pot being tipped over Robert's head, and his hurt pride spilled over into rebellion. He and his companions rode to the Norman capital at Rouen trying to seize the castle. They failed, but then ran over to the side of the rebels that they had been fighting against earlier. Predictably, Robert had chosen the losing side, but he wasn't ready to be chastened, and he started looking for friends. And at this point, like some sort of dramatic villain, Philip of France sidled up to him, eyes gleaming, and showed him lots of sympathy and offered to help. He made the same offer he'd made to Edgar Atheling, to provide a castle over the border from which he could organise raids into his father's territory as he wished. He suggested a place called Chebrois, which incidentally looks like a lovely place to visit. William obviously was having none of this, and in 1079 he appeared in front of Robert's castle. But things didn't go the way he expected, and in fact he was met in combat by his son, wounded in the arm, and might well have been killed, if Robert hadn't recognised him at the last moment and stopped and let him go. William Rufus was also hurt at the same time, and interestingly, an English companion, Toki, son of Wigget of Wallingford, was killed fighting in their defence, which gives some idea that the English Thanage was still involved in fighting for the king. All this seemed to bring the parties to their senses for a while. Matilda and Robert's friends intervened, begging William to make peace with his son. William was at first unimpressed and even threatened to blind one of Matilda's servants if she didn't stop going on about it, but eventually William gave in, and he and his son were reconciled. William made a great play of again recognising Robert as his heir and co-ruler of Normandy, and this seemed to quieten things down for the next few years. William then did his best to involve his son in the family business. So in 1079-80, the North flared up again, with yet another invasion from Malcolm Canmore, King of Scots in 1079, and with the killing of the Bishop of Durham, Walcher, by the Northumbrians in 1080, just generally because he was a bit of an arse. William sent Odo of Bayer up to fix the Bish, and Robert up to fix Malcolm. Robert reached Edinburgh, but he couldn't bring things to a conclusion, so he came back and founded, incidentally, Newcastle. And then for a while, things go quiet in William's reign. The English are at last subdued, Lanfranc is reorganising the church, and his nobility are busy nobling away. Matilda died in 1083, and at least outwardly, William seemed to be very sad about that. 
His troubles, such as they are, tend to be from the traditional enemy, the Welsh, and his own nobles. So William's a bit bored in 1081, and he goes on a bit of a Welsh raid for a bit of entertainment. Some of the hardness of William's character is then showed by the episode in 1082 with his half-brother Odo of Bayeux. Now at this time, the papacy is in the wars with the Holy Roman Emperor Henry trying to depose the reforming Pope Gregory. Odo, apparently bored of building up his vast wealth by raping the English countryside, wanted to hop off with his knights and go and support Gregory. William was livid. He did not want Gregory supported. He did not want any of his men restoring the power of a papacy that he was trying very hard to ignore. So he stripped Odo of his titles as Earl of Kent and slung him in jail, where he remained until after William's death. Now we don't know all of the facts here, which is one of the continuing frustrations of medieval history, but it does look terribly hard. Odo has been a faithful and useful lieutenant for William all his life. Yep, he's been very well rewarded, but William owed a lot to him. But once crossed, or when affairs of state were threatened, William's to show again and again that he was hard and utterly ruthless, and previous and personal history counted for little. Then in 1085, the family of Svein the Unpronounceable comes back for one last time into our story. Svein died in 1074, and was succeeded by five of his sons in turn. And one of these, Knut IV, inherited his father's desire to regain the throne of England when he came to the throne in 1080. Knut had plans both internally and externally. He was a devout Christian, and he strengthened the power of the church, and he also increased the power of the crown at the expense of his nobility. But his big ambition was England. He had already been over for a look in 1069 and 1075, and in 1085 he got a fleet together, helped out by his allies, Count Robert of Flanders and Olaf of Norway. Everything was ready when a distraction appeared in the form of the Holy Roman Emperor, who seemed set to invade Denmark. So Knut sent the fleet home to gather their harvest and told them to come back again next year. But next year the country rose in revolt and Knut was murdered in a church with his brother and followers and the threat disappeared. But in 1085 William didn't know that and it's clear he took the threat very seriously. He put a large army together and brought them into England where they fed like locusts on the local population and vassals as armies are wont to do. William got his army to devastate the land close to the coast to deprive Knut and his army of food if and when they landed. All of this caused considerable pain to the local population and they'd have been mighty pleased to get the all clear. William also tried a few more outlandish tactics to boot. Clearly he was not yet fully convinced that the Anglo-Saxons were trustworthy so he gave the following command that the English should shave their beards adopt the weapons and clothes of the Normans and become completely like Frenchmen in order to delude the eyes of the invaders. Not quite sure what the plan really was. Was the idea that the Vikings would be confused and think they'd come to the wrong place? Or maybe William thought the English would join them when they landed? One of the interesting things about this is of course the clear implication that Normans and English dressed differently. By and large, the Normans were clean-shaven with hair cut high up the back of the neck. The English had much longer hair, moustache and beards. Women, meanwhile, wore their hair longer, and married women wore their hair loose, and married women wore it bound. Obviously, fashions moved with the times a bit. William Rufus was a good deal more loose than his father, and hairstyles were long and flowing during his reign, and that of Henry. The church didn't approve of this, something they spent a lot of time doing with Rufus, disapproving, that is to say. But in William's time, the Normans clearly rather looked down on these English with their unmilitary long hair and fashions. But anyway, we now come to 1085 and the making of the Doomsday Book. 
It's rare that the history of government administrative practices receives so much attention, but something about it has always really caught the imagination. In the winter of 1085-6, William called a magnum concilium, i.e. a great council, which was the successor of the Witan. And he floated his idea that they really ought to know about what they had in their kingdom. And no doubt everybody told him what a great idea it was. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's been a long, continuous debate about why Doomsday was created. One of the theories currently popular comes back to those Danes and their threatened invasion of 1085. The theory runs that this got William thinking. How many troops would he have been able to raise? Could he have organised the feeding of his army better by understanding what vassals could do what? And that it was this, therefore, that made William undertake the Doomsday Survey. But of course there are other reasons, equally if not more popular. Reason number one was money. William liked money, he really liked money. And of course money was important to him to maintain his army and keep his family in the lifestyle they'd become accustomed to. William wanted a detailed record so he knew exactly how much tax he could take. Idea number two is land ownership. We've just been through one of the largest and quickest transfer of land ownership in English history. William needed to know who'd got what, and also to create a record which legalised all that new landholding, and drew a line under any arguments. He could understand and manage the relative strengths of his major lords and make sure none of them got too powerful. My own theory is that William was thinking about all those historians who through the centuries would then have loads of fun poring over the Doomsday Book's lore, searching for truths and insights. But of course the answer was probably that William thought of all of these things and thought they were all good reasons to do it, probably with the exception of the historian thing. The survey was a staggering thing, astoundingly beautifully produced, with neat ranks of figures and information, extraordinary detail, down to how many pigs old Oswald's got. It's an absolute goldmine of information for the historian, of course, and it's easy to get lost in all the various peregrinations. The undertaking of the survey itself clearly absolutely astonished contemporaries, and curiously, in the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, there's a sort of embarrassed shame on behalf of the king. Here's what it says. So very closely did he let it be searched out that there was not a single hide nor rod of land, not further it is shameful to tell, Though it seemed to him no shame to do it, not an ox, a cow, a pig left out. You see what I mean? This chronicler thinks it's all wrong. And the survey probably caused all kinds of trouble. The thing was carried out by queries at the Hundred Courts. And you can picture the old Thane's son shouting that the land had belonged to him, while the Norman who'd taken his land smugly recorded the land as his. Either way, the survey was taken and in 1086 was presented back to a no doubt delighted William. William had organised another get-together at Winchester at Easter, where he wore his crown. These crown wearings feel more than a bit odd to the modern mind. Essentially, old Bill would get his full kit on, crown, regalia and all, and get the great men of his kingdom to come and watch him. He'd do this about three times a year, and I guess it basically re-emphasised his royal authority. It's very much a tradition that's associated with the conqueror, It's not something that happened under the Anglo-Saxons, and it's not something that William's successors were to continue to anything like the same extent. William was a pugnacious character who had spent his own life, and indeed the lives of many of his subjects, 
in his self-aggrandizement and the business of managing a feudal kingdom. So who's to say he shouldn't spend a bit of time every year wallowing in it? The same year, he also organised another massive get-together in August at Old Sarum. The results of the Doomsday Survey were presented to him there, and at the same time, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records, There his councillors came to him, and all men who were holding land that were of worth from all over England, whoever's vassals they were. They all bowed to him and were his vassals, and swore him oaths of loyalty that they would, against all other men, be loyal to him. I suppose you have to be a bit paranoid to stay on a throne in those days, and William was making absolutely sure that he'd made the deal clear. In his land settlement, he'd made sure that everyone held land from him. No one held land any more from their own right. Here, he has dragged everyone from all the corners of the kingdom to reinforce that point. I'm the boss, everything comes from me. I was involved in some online forum debate recently about the development of democracy and the concept of the sovereignty of the people. So it's useful to remember William as a base point. There was an elective principle in Anglo-Saxon kingship that survived from the days of Germanic folk custom, a small survival it must be said. But that principle now hangs by the thinnest of threads. Forget sovereignty of the people. This land and its people belonged to William and his family, period. 1086 was a hard year for the English. A survey that confirmed their servitude. A famine caused by hideous weather. And just to put the cherry on the cake, William levied a heavy geld before hopping off back home to Normandy. All the chronicler could say was, God amend it when it be his will. As a little footnote, Edgar Atheling left William's court. Just like Edwin, Morcar and Robert Curtos, Edgar had found that in practice William was not prepared to give him any authority or role. So he sold up all his property and managed to get himself together 200 men and head off for adventure in Apulia, in Italy. Sadly, it wasn't to be a great success and he'll be back. One day we must put Edgar's life together into one more consolidated story, because it is an interesting story. 1087 then continued to be hard, with pestilence following famine as is so often the case. But for William it was just another year of bashing down moles back into their holes. This year's mole was the Vexin yet again, when the capital of the French Vexin Mont sent its garrison raiding over into Norman Vexin. William demanded that the French king surrender three of his castles in recompense, he was duly refused, so in July he attacked, sacked and burnt Mont, leaving death in his wake. But this time at last, William's own number had come up. My son tells me with great relish that William died because he burst. And in fact, he kind of burst twice. Bursting number one comes in Mont, when William, now enormously fat, is thrown violently against the pommel of his saddle and ruptures something. He was taken immediately in great pain to Rouen, though expected to recover. But over the next six weeks, he continued to just get worse. His adversary, Philip of France, didn't try to hide his delight, mocking William, saying he was lying in Rouen like a pregnant woman. William finally accepted that he was dying and tried to make provision for his succession. His eldest son, Robert, though reconciled in 1080, had set off again for exile in 1083, unable to bear the iron control exercised over him by his father. Matilda had of course died in 1083 as well, so there was no peacemaker left. So relations were just not good. William also, as we've said, favoured his second son Rufus, but had twice confirmed Robert as Duke of Normandy, so he went for a compromise. He decreed that Robert should indeed inherit the homeland of Normandy, but Rufus should have England. For the third son, Henry, there would be a massive fortune of £5,000 of silver to buy himself a nice pad, 
Rufus was with his father, so he was dispatched to England to take up his throne before anybody could cause him any trouble. After his death, William was taken as he requested to where his heart was, i.e. Caen, and to be buried at the Abbey of Saint-Étienne. All the bishops and abbots of Normandy were there, but unfortunately the whole thing ended in chaos and confusion. William's body was too fat and gross for the coffin, and it wouldn't close. So they tried to squidge it shut, and now we come to the second bursting, when the rotten body burst and innards spilt all over the church, with the revolting stench, vileness and general yuckiness. The ceremony was rushed quickly to an end, and everybody legged it, leaving William's body lying deserted in plain view. And so we get to the end of the reign of one of the most famous of England's historical figures. There were many things that actually weren't changed very much by William. The governance and administration of England stayed very much the same. The Normans introduced no new methods of agriculture. English law remained in place for both Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Danish inhabitants. It did gain a new layer of law and custom in feudal law, but that only affected those who held land in fiefs. The mass of the population remained English and the rhythm of daily life would have seemed similar to before. Trade in towns, for example, would have suffered badly initially. It would have been affected by war, the tearing down of houses to make way for castles and the severing of trade with Scandinavia or Flanders. But after the initial crisis, things got back on track and the Norman lords themselves contributed to the establishing of new boroughs in their lands. But while it's possible to emphasise the continuity, there's no getting away from the fact that William made an enormous impact on England. Many of those impacts we've been through over the last three episodes or so. The church was brought much more closely into line with the continental mainstream and some reforms were affected. The fabric of the church received a dramatic facelift, which is still with us today. The old English aristocracy was completely swept away and replaced by an almost exclusively Norman lords. A new language was established as the official language of England, and English as a language of literature disappeared for a while. A big one that is scarcely definable is that shift from public community orientation of public life to the personal and feudal. England is now William's personal possession, managed by his tenants-in-chief on his behalf. And then there's the radical readjustment of England's centre of gravity. England is still a small, damp, rather irrelevant island off the continental coast, but it is now part of the continental game. Its previous focus on the island of Britain and the Scandinavian world had changed forever. And what about the man? The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle has a real go at William in the 1087 entry, and also does a bit of retrospective, which you'd find it hard to argue with as coming from a contemporary who had probably met him. I put a link on the website again to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and really go to the entry for 1087 and it'll tell you all you need to know about William the Conqueror. William was a hard-ass, no two ways about it. He had no worries about the ruler's responsibility towards his people. He was out to create and rule a family business and kingdom. He would use anyone from his half-brother downwards in exactly the way he needed to further his ends. He was ruthless about making the right decision, whatever the impact on the relevant person. That doesn't necessarily mean he was unfair, just that if he messed up, you just may not get a second chance. Once you were out of favour, that was it, no way back. He had enormous strength of will, everyone knew where they stood with him, and that meant he was well served by many of his companions, but he lacked the flexibility maybe to bend men more subtly to his will, and adapt his behaviour to different needs. Again, think of Robert Edgar and the Earls. The Chronicler makes this point really well. He was mild with good men who loved God, and over all measure, hard with men who spoke against his will. He was avaricious. The chronicler puts it this way. 
The king and the headmen loved and loved too much the greed for gold and silver and cared not how sinfully it was obtained. His avarice had practical day-to-day consequences on ordinary people since it communicated itself down the line. Here's how the chronicler puts it again. The king granted his lands on hard terms. The king let it go into the hands of the men who bid the most, nor cared how sinfully the reeve got it from the poor men. They raised unjust tolls and many other injustices they did, which are hard to recount. So basically the point is that William set a high price for his grants of land. That meant that the new landowners had to exploit the locals ruthlessly in order to make a profit of their purchase. But while William was hard, he was also straightforward. He was clever and cunning. He got his priorities right and usually made the right decisions. And he was a competent military commander and effective organiser. And then he was genuinely devout. So overall, William was a very effective king. And here's the chronicler again. Good peace he made in this land, so that a man of any account may fare over the kingdom with a bosom full of gold unmolested. And no man dared kill another, even if he had done much evil to him. The historian Frank Barlow, who is now my constant companion where Frank Stenton once was, puts it very well. William never gives the impression of having been born out of his proper time. He was no barbarian leader, neither was he a statesman. He had learned the art of government in the hardest school, so that a conquered nation, croned under his rule, but could not withhold a grudging admiration. I'd contrast that with Alfred the Great a man who it does feel did manage to transcend his time. But nonetheless, William was a great and effective leader who had as much impact in his history as did Alfred. This seems a neat and tidy place to leave our podcast this week. Next week, we'll hear about William Rufus and start the story of the three brothers. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.